0: by turning in our Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. I don't know about you, but I think there is no better place to be than here together with God's people celebrating His love, His power to save Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the word of God says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For those of you who might be joining us for the first time, we have been studying, considering together Acts chapter 20, and this is our fourth time giving careful consideration to this magnificent chapter in the Bible. Central to this passage is a farewell speech found in verses 17 through 35, in which we see the Apostle Paul saying goodbye to the elders that he had come to love. These were the elders overseeing the churches in Ephesus. We know from verse 25 that this would be Paul's last time seeing them. He would never see them again. In that sense, this farewell speech is one of the most significant in all of the Bible. This morning, we have reached the very heart of this speech and of this chapter. Being his last time with them, the Apostle Paul takes this opportunity to bring to the forefront of their minds the most precious truth known to men and we find that most precious truth known to men in verse 28 which is the verse to which i've been alluding in every sermon this verse holds an entire biblical and theological and system within itself it is an ocean containing the sweetest and the deepest doctrinal waters you could possibly swim in my only frustration is that I won't be able to do it justice. Please listen to it yet again. To the Ephesian elders, Paul says, as he leaves them, never to see them again, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own Blood, that, my friends, is the most precious truth ever known to man. I have tried, with God's help, to show you the absolute centrality of those words for the last three weeks by treating all of chapter 20 as an expanded explanation of the truth contained in verse 28. At the heart of our considerations has been the theme of Christ's blood, and what this blood achieved. He obtained the church with his blood. This means, at the very least, that Jesus obtained the means for gathering and preserving his church. We know then that every spiritual blessing given to us comes from Christ Every spiritual blessing flows from the cross of Jesus to us. More specifically, we have seen four blessings secured by the blood of Christ Jesus so far. With his blood, we have seen Jesus secured the success of global missions. Missions will be successful. The Great Commission will be accomplished. Why? Because Jesus, what did he do with his blood? He bought the You know it by now, right? He secured the success of global missions. Jesus secured, moreover, the unity of the church. He bought it. Moreover, Jesus, with his blood, he secured the gifts of repentance and faith. And he also secured, he bought, he purchased the reality of a new life. Just to bring it home. The baptisms we witnessed a few moments ago. Are A tangible real life manifestation of the fact that Jesus obtained a people for himself through his blood. What Jesus did over 2,000 years ago is felt today and seen today. Every time a person says, I believe in him and I will follow him 2,000 years later. Logan and sydney they belong to Jesus. They were bought with his blood and you saw it this morning. God is still at work. Today, as I said, we have come to the heart of our meditations, and I want to draw your attention to the central accomplishment of the blood of Jesus shed on the the cross. If you're following the notes, here it is. Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood can bring us to God. Nothing but the blood can bring us to God, of all the blessings that come to us from the cross, and they are incalculable and innumerable, the central one is precisely that. Through His blood, Jesus has brought us back to God. But I begin with the question of questions. Why blood? This is our central question. Why blood? Our verse says explicitly, That whatever God did with regard to the church, he did it through blood. What comes to your mind when you think of blood? Why blood? Now, the following statement may strike you as odd or it may hit you right between the eyes. But it is true. The Bible, this book that we gather to study together every Sunday, the Bible is one of the bloodiest books you could ever read. The Bible is one of the bloodiest, bloodiest books you could ever read. It does not hide blood. The Bible puts blood not only on full display from Genesis to Revelation, but it gives blood a central place from the beginning. Blood in the Bible is shed over and over and over again through sacrifices, wars, and never ending death. Blood is everywhere. So central is blood to the biblical narrative, in fact, that you cannot understand the Bible. You cannot understand almost anything apart from understanding blood, blood. So I must take you back to the ancient past, even more ancient than the book of Acts itself. We must go all the way back to the Old Testament. Let me show you as briefly as I can how in the Old Testament, the blood of Jesus was foreshadowed. This is the first point in our notes, how the blood of Jesus was foreshadowed. And it was foreshadowed in two primary ways. First, the Old Testament showed the need for blood. The Old Testament showed the need for blood. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this. After sin entered the world through Adam's disobedience, blood became central Absolutely central to God's relationship with man. So much so that it became clear that without blood, God and man could not be in a relationship. And God showed this in several ways. You might remember if you have read the Bible a few times, immediately after the first sin, God himself clothed Adam and Eve with animal skin. Right after they sinned, God clothed Adam Adam and Eve with animal skin. Therefore, the first shedding of blood in human history was at the hands of God himself. Even though the text doesn't say this explicitly in Genesis, the strong implication is that God himself killed the first animal to cover the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve. Blood was required, and blood was provided. Later on in the biblical narrative, we find the story of Abraham and Isaac. God told Abraham to take Isaac, his only son, and to offer him as a what? Sacrifice. As Abraham is about to fulfill the divine command by spilling his own son's blood, God stops Abraham. This is immediately followed by God providing a substitute for Isaac, a ram. And the ram's blood is spilled instead of Isaac's. Once again, blood was required. Blood was provided. After spending 400 years in Egypt as slaves, God delivered his people, Israel, through 10 plagues. Right before the last plague, when God killed the firstborn in every Egyptian household, God told the Israelites that they would be spared, that death would not enter their household, that none of their firstborn son would die, but only those from Egypt. But how would the Israelites be spared? Only with what? You know it by now. Blood. God instructed them, the Israelites, to kill a lamb without spot, take some of the blood, and put it outside their house as a sign. Then God said to the Israelites the following words in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. The blood outside of the house, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And God said this to the Israelites. And when I see the blood, I will pass, what? Over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Even the people of God, in order to be spared death, they needed what? Blood. Are you getting the pattern? Clearly, the Old Testament showed the need for blood. But the Old Testament also taught grace through blood. The Old Testament taught grace through blood. In every story I've mentioned, God always took the initiative. God spared human life. And God provided what was required, namely blood. The blood was the central picture of grace. God spared his people from death but not without blood. Grace was bestowed by blood. Later on, God established the entire religious life of the nation of Israel on the premise that they could only come to the altar with blood. And all of this brings us, of course, to Jesus. All that history and all that blood in the Old Testament was meant to point forward. To create anticipation. To serve as a bridge to something much, much, much greater. Yes, blood was needed and blood was provided. Blood was a picture of grace. An innumerable amount of lambs were sacrificed in the Old Testament. But it was all pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus. He came into the world to do something With his own blood, which is not surprising at this point given the absolute prominence of blood in Jewish history. So let us follow that crimson thread as it leads us all the way to that cross on which the Prince of Glory died. The first thing that we see about the blood is this. The blood of Jesus is revealing. The blood of Jesus is revealing revealing what does the blood of jesus reveal in the first place the blood of jesus reveals number one the severe consequences of sin the severe consequences of sin as god introduced adam and eve to every tree in the garden telling them to enjoy all of them god also told them but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely what die die thousands of years later as jesus hanged on that tree and his blood flowed down the meaning of those words in the garden finally became clear The true payment of sin. What sin actually deserves was put on full display as the Son of God poured out His blood on that cross. Nothing reveals the severe, horrendous consequences of sin like the cross of Jesus. Nothing. The skin covering over Adam and Eve. The blood of the ram that took Isaac's place and the lambs that were slaughtered over and over in Egypt, all of it pointed to one single fact, one single fact. All that blood throughout the entire Old Testament, one single fact, it is this, the wages of sin is death. Every time we read of any animal shedding its blood, it is reminding us of that one central truth, what sin deserves is death. Sin requires blood because sin demands death, and life is in the blood. When I say that blood became central to man's relationship with God, nothing shows this more clearly than Jesus dying on a cross and shedding his blood. Now, related to this, the blood of Jesus also reveals, number two, the unbreakable justice of God. Not only the severe consequences of sin are revealed in the cross of Jesus, but it also reveals the unbreakable justice of God. When I talk to people who are considering the gospel for the first time, I often ask them a question that normally leaves them in deep thought. It can be perceived as a trick question, although it's not meant to be that way. The question goes something like this. If God can do anything, then could God have forgiven our sins without the blood of Jesus? Was the death of Christ absolutely necessary? Couldn't God just say, you are forgiven? And so normally I can see people's inner conflict. The conflict rests upon an apparent tension. What is the tension? Well, it is true that God can do all things. Then why not find an easier way to save us? Why put his son through the greatest pain ever known to any man in the history of the world, to the greatest humiliation ever known to man in the history of the world, to the greatest suffering ever known to man in the history of the world? Why couldn't God just say, you know what? You guys are forgiven. We're going to avoid that step. Why put his son on a cross? Was it necessary? Even for God? The answer is yes. Why? Isn't it true that God can do anything? Well, nothing is impossible for God. We agree on that. Amen? Nothing is impossible for God except... To act contrary to who he is. And God is just. God is just. Therefore, to act justly is to act in accordance with his character. And to not punish sin would be to act contrary to who he is. And that God cannot do. For God cannot contradict Himself, If God could contradict himself, then he would not be God, would he? Why is he God? Because he always lives and acts as God. And if he is just, he must punish sin. His just character demands that sin be punished. In other words, the death of Jesus was divine justice on full display. The wages of sin is death. Blood was required. Blood was provided. Next, we see this. The blood of Jesus is specific. It's not only revealing, but is specific. It was shed for the church. Who is the church? Let me clarify that we are not here speaking about a local church, such as Grace Community Church. This local church is an expression of the church universal. The church of God in verse 28 is a reference to the church in all the world. People who by grace have believed, are believing, and will believe in the Lord Jesus in every age, from every tribe, nation, and tongue until the end of the world. That is the church. And for her, the Bible says... Jesus died. But based on our previous point, what else can we say about the church? Oh, you're going to like this, brothers and sisters. Is the church a group of good, exemplary people who deserve the love of God and His favor? Not at all. If you believe that, you didn't get anything what I've said before. Christians are simply Who are Christians? Christians are simply people who have come to understand that apart from Jesus dying for them, they have no hope. They have no hope. Christians are the ones who by grace have understood the severe consequences of their sin and the unbreakable justice of God. And that apart from that man dying for them on the cross, shedding his own blood, they have nowhere to run. They have nowhere to hide. They are like Adam hiding from God among the trees. They have no refuge. That's what we are. That's what Christians are. But God rescued them through his son. We can't escape the specificity of this verse. Jesus obtained the church with his blood. His death was specific. In other words, Jesus died for people he knew. He came for a particular people, his bride. As the hymn says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She, meaning the church, she is his new creation, By spirit and the word. And then the hymn says this. From heaven he came and sought who? Her, the church. To be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, the church. And for her life he died. But wait a minute. Doesn't John 3.16 say, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, That doesn't sound specific. I believe John's original point was to expand the narrow Jewish understanding of God's love. God doesn't love the Jews only. He loves the whole world. The church is not made up of Jews only, but of Gentiles from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. So don't let the general statements create conflict with the specificity of Christ's death. In fact, if you remove specificity from the love of God in Christ Jesus, then verse 28 loses its meaning. I can guarantee you this, that Jesus knew the church for whom he died, every one of them. Prior to coming into the world, Logan's name, Sidney's name, were in his mind. And as he shed his blood, He did it for them. Those names were known to him from all eternity. And because this is the case, we also learn this about the blood of Jesus. Next, the blood of Jesus is effectual. The blood of Jesus is effectual. Because it was specific, it must also be successful in its intention. And verse 28 says that it was. It was. What did Jesus do with his blood? He obtained the church. His blood did not, and it will not, fail. But more specifically, what did the blood of Jesus accomplish? I dare not attempt an exhaustive list of all the accomplishments of the blood of Jesus, but I will give you five specific accomplishments. Now, please follow me to the book of Romans. We're going to be in the book of Romans for for a little bit as we look at each of these. Now, if you're following the notes, let me give you the first accomplishment of the blood. Number one, atonement. Atonement. And I have given you a brief definition, description of what that means in the notes. His blood covered our sins by his sacrifice. So as you turn to Romans chapter 4, let me explain this a little bit. Atonement is probably the most comprehensive word when it comes to communicating the work of Jesus, what he accomplished. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the word atonement is mentioned over 100 times. And it is clearly a word that has to do with making restitution for sin. For instance, in Leviticus chapter uh, 1, verses 2 and 4, it says this, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. He, the person, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The idea presented here is that the person bringing the offering to the altar is taking refuge in the sacrifice of the offering to put a covering over his sins with the understanding that forgiveness, forgiveness can only be enjoyed by that sacrifice. Atonement, then, it's a sacrifice that deals with sin. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament were mere shadows. They were types of the perfect and once for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. What the Old Testament sacrifices could only typify, the Lord Jesus actually did. He died to deal with our sins once for all. Therefore, Paul can say in Romans chapter 4, verse 7, as he quotes David, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are what? Covered, atoned for. My friend, is there anything else in all of life you can think of that can deal with the reality of your sin and cover them perfectly and forever. Can you think of anything other than Jesus shedding his blood for sins? We will return to this at the end. What else did the blood of Jesus accomplish? Number two, propitiation. Propitiation. That's another important word. What does that mean? It means that his blood appeased The holy wrath of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. The death of Jesus on the cross was the worst death in human history. Let me tell you why. A few hours prior to his crucifixion, and as Jesus thought about the cross with the cross in his mind, the Lord Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, My Father, do you remember this prayer, right? My Father, if it be possible, Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What cup was Jesus speaking of? What is this cup that he is speaking of? It is the cup of the Father's wrath. The cup of God's fury against sin. This was the cup Jesus would soon drink as he went to the cross. And the punishment for the sins of the entire church were placed upon his shoulders. Thus we read in Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. What did Jesus accomplish by his blood? Full, perfect satisfaction of divine justice. He absorbed upon himself what you and I deserved. Jesus faced the darkness of divine wrath so that we could come to the light of divine love. Wrath, wrath, divine wrath is gone. Divine wrath is gone. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awful weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. That is what Jesus did. Every every sin we have ever committed, the punishment for everything was put on His Son, on our behalf. Here's the next accomplishment of the blood. Not only atonement, propitiation, but also justification. Justification. His blood secured our right standing before God. Romans 5 verse 9 once again. Since therefore, Paul says, We have now been justified by what? I hear a lot of whispering. We have been justified by His blood. Did you hear that? We have been justified by His blood. The blood of Jesus did not create the possibility of justification, but it actually secured it. His blood justifies. What does that mean? It means that by his sacrifice, sinners can be, can be legally declared what they are not. And what is that? Righteous. Righteous. Why? Because sin's curse and power and condemnation have been removed. We give Jesus our sin. He gives us his righteousness. We give Jesus our sin, and he dies for it. He gives us his righteousness, and we live because of it. This was God's design. And by his blood, the Lord Jesus guaranteed our justification before God. Here's next, number next, number next, <laughs> reconciliation, reconciliation. It is hard to think of, of a more beautiful word, reconciliation, his blood established peace between God and men. Look at uh, Romans 5, verse 10. I'm keeping this very simple. You don't have to go anywhere in your Bible. Just stay in Romans. Except the next point. Yeah, we're going to change. Romans 5, 10. For if while we were enemies, have you ever considered the weight of those words? Let me stop you right there. Have you considered the weight of those words? While we were enemies. Enemies, have you ever thought of yourself ever in your life as an enemy of God? This is what the Bible says. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Did you hear that? We were reconciled by the death of Jesus, not by anything that we have done. We were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. His blood secured the blessing of friendship with God as opposed to enmity. Jesus removed the enmity once for all. If you are a sinner running away from God through Jesus, you can become a friend who comes to God in faith and full, full, full reconciliation. So the only question is, will you come through Christ? And here's the next blessing. By the way, I'm giving you five, which makes me feel inadequate. To the utmost degree, do you realize that what we're going to do in heaven? We're going to spend eternity rejoicing in all the benefits that Christ has secured for us. Here's the one, the next one, sanctification. Sanctification. His blood guaranteed our cleansing from sin. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want us to read verses 25 and 26. Ephesians 5, 25, and 26. Listen to what Paul, in in his instruction to husbands, he said this. Husbands, love your wives. How? What is our model, husbands? As Christ loved the what? The church. And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Why did Jesus die? To secure the gift and the blessing of a sanctified life. Have you seen any progress in your Christian commitment and devotion? Have you seen any growth in you? That is also the gift flowing to you directly from the blood of Jesus. It is a gift of his blood to you. Your new life is a gift. So there you have it. Five blessings secured completely by the cross. Atonement. Propitiation, justification, reconciliation, and sanctification. In short, what else can we say about, about the blood of Jesus? In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, and you know what? Why don't you go there with me because I want you to read it with your own eyes. This is what we're trying to say. This is the bottom line. This is what we celebrate of the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. It says that Jesus, Hebrews 9.12, it says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy place. He presented himself before God, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. What is the consequence of that? What is the consequence of what he did on the cross? What did he accomplish? Thus says, securing. What? An eternal redemption. Securing an eternal redemption. Brothers and sisters, it would be impossible to say it with any more clarity than that. What Jesus did through his sacrifice on the cross was a vicarious death that fully and perfectly met all the requirements for our salvation. So we can confidently say with the hymn writer, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me God looks at the one who died who shed his blood he has already done it God is satisfied so he can look at you and pardon you and you can be a son you can be a daughter you don't have to run away from him anymore Jesus paid it all why can the son do this how is his blood sufficient And how can his blood be the perfect payment for the church? Why is his work definite and the results guarantee? Here's the next point. The blood of Jesus is unique. The blood of Jesus is unique. And we're almost done. Not really. I'm just trying to give you hope. Why is the blood of Jesus unique? Because of who he is. God in the flesh. Let me try to show you why verse 28 is one of the most impressive statements concerning the person of Jesus in all of Scripture. If you pay attention, it leaves you speechless. All we have to do is to ask simple questions of the verse. So as you look at verse 28, I'm going to ask you to help me here. Who obtained the church? It's not a trick question. According to the passage, just read verse 28. Who obtained the church? I'm going to help you. Because you're shy. God. God. Right? The church of God, which he, meaning God. Right? So who obtained the church? God. With what? With blood. Whose blood? God's? God's. But that creates a problem, right? You know what I'm talking about. Blood is a uniquely creaturely element a human component made of matter. Why is that a problem? An immaterial, disembodied being like God, on the other hand, cannot be said to have blood. That would be correct. I applaud you for that conclusion. So what do we do with that statement? First, we must avoid a particular doctrinal error, a heresy known as patripassianism. That's an easy word for you to remember. Patripazianism, which is a subset of another doctrinal error or heresy known as modalism. How many of you have heard of modalism? Okay, you, you, you get it. You know we're going to be here for a while. Uh-huh. Modalism. Nervous laughter once again. <laughs> I hope he's joking, right? What is modalism? Let me bring to your attention the beloved hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. You have heard that, that hymn, right? We have sing that hymn many times. It says this, famously says, God in three persons, blessed trinity. God in three what? Persons. Modalism, which is a heresy, would say God in three modes, hence the name modalism. According to modalism, God is not one God in three distinct persons, but one God expressing himself in three different modes. For modalism, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not distinct divine persons, but three different expressions of the same person. Patripatianism is a type of modalism in the sense that it teaches that the Son is just another expression of the Father. Therefore, the one who died on the cross and shed his blood was the Father. Verse 28 could be mishandled that way if we believe the blood was the blood of the Father. But Orthodox Trinitarianism Christianity insists that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct divine persons. Therefore, the only way to understand verse twenty eight is by seeing it as a reference to God in the flesh, meaning Jesus is what it was the eternal Son of God in distinction from the Father and the spirit who became a man, took full humanity, grew older, experienced sorrow, and eventually and willingly went to a cross to die in the place of sinner. It was not the Father, it was not the spirit is what it was the Son, uniquely the Son, exclusively the Son, the second person of the Trinity. In other words, what I'm saying is that the only way to take the words God on the one hand and blood on the other hand and put them in the same sentence is if the person or there is a person who actually represents both God and man. And there's only one. There's only one. The Lord Jesus. So the expression the blood of God can only make sense. In the person of Jesus. A theologian named Robert Webb. Explained why Jesus is the only. Perfect person. Who could pay the the, the penalty of sin. Listen to this. And I quote. Jesus must be human. To pay the penalty in kind. He must also be divine. To pay the penalty in degree. He must be unipersonal. Two persons in one. In order to do both. In the same act. Then he adds, quote, it would take a mere finite being, an eternity, to pay the penalty of sin in finite installments. It would take an infinite being, a limited period of time, to pay that penalty in full. It would take a unipersonal being to pay the penalty at once, end quote. The blood of Jesus is unique, for it is the blood of the Son of God, shed for sinners, It is human blood of infinite value. So logically, we come to the next truth, which will be short. From all of this, from all of this, we conclude the blood of Jesus is sufficient. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. My friend, he paid it all. All to him we owe. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Can you say that with faith? Is there anything about your redemption, your forgiveness, your acceptance with God that Jesus has not earned and secured through his blood? Can you think of anything he didn't accomplish for you? Are you lacking anything? In Christ Jesus, the answer will always be known. No condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. I need nothing else. And here's the final point. The blood of Jesus is demanding. Demanding. By that I mean this it calls for a response. The blood of Jesus demands a response from us repentance and faith on the one hand, or rejection. I already mentioned at least one instance of atonement in the Old Testament. When the person brought the offering to be slaughtered, they would place their hands upon the head of the offering and then have the offering sacrificed by the priest. Why? Why would they place the hand in the head of the animal? There was a symbolic transfer. The guilt of the offerer was symbolically transferred unto the offering to be sacrificed. By laying his hands on the head of the animal, the offerer was performing an act of faith, saying, in essence, the blood of this animal for the forgiveness of my sins. Today, we don't have a sacrificial system anymore. There is no temple, no altar, or actual blood running down. But we have the blood of Jesus. And that is all we need. But rather than putting your hands upon him, you put your faith on him, And when you do that, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, when you believe in him, when you accept his sacrifice for your sins, your guilt is transferred to him. His righteousness is transferred to you. There is no greater truth, no more wonderful truth known to man that God and you can be reconciled, that your guilt can be transferred upon him, that he died for your sins, and that you can have his righteousness. So as you think about the cross on which Jesus died, you realize two things. My sin is great, but his blood is enough. The blood of Jesus calls you to repent of your sins and to believe in him. Will you say this morning, I believe in the one who shed his blood for me. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the blood of Jesus is enough. Everything we need has been provided, even the prize for sins. We're no longer enemies of God, but his sons and daughters through faith in Jesus who gave himself up for us. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this simple, simple reminder. Basic reminder. That's literally all we can do as we contemplate the depths of the blood of Jesus. We are left in awe. Father, you know that this has been a a simple, insufficient attempt. But I pray that you will take the shortcomings of my own presentation. That you will take it. You will do what only you can do. To take the heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. All we can say is thank you for paying the debt of our sins, for giving us the hope of eternal life, for the confidence that we have now to say that because of Christ and his blood, we are free. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.